Hi, and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with George Egg, who is a fantastic comedian. He cooks um, with power tools and hotel implements, and he's a very interesting person as well. He came down to London to do the podcast from Brighton and as well to visit his parents who are getting older. We had a chat about that, about looking after parents, about looking after children. We had a chat about the current state of comedy and his feelings about Hannah Gadsby's brilliant show Nanette as well as a number of other great I mean this is one of those conversations we covered a lot of ground it was really interesting I hope you enjoy listening to it and thank you everybody who has emailed me alicerfraser at gmail.com everyone who's tweeted me at alliterative a-l-i-t-e-r-a-t-i-v-e it always makes me feel better genuinely it always makes me feel so good when I get an email from one of you uh, even if it is just a few words um and it makes it'll make my afternoon uh thank you everybody who supports me on the patreon um that is a phenomenal thing it's just mind-blowingly good and the skype conversations i've had have been really really beautiful really interesting really engaging if uh you are subscribed at that level just email me and we will sort out a time alicerfraser at gmail.com uh, that's it for me for the intro i will let you listen to the rest of the podcast i will be in edinburgh from the whole month of august i will be at the llama tree festival i'll be at the curious arts festival in england various places in england i will also be at the yorkshire fringe festival and i'll be doing a preview of ethos on the 17th at the brighton comedia so that is all of that and i'll be on this week's bugle which we recorded live the other day and keep an eye out otherwise twitter is probably the place i'll put the things up on twitter as they come at alliterative a-l-i-t-e-r-a-t-i-v-e here is george egg see you next week But I figure you're a performer, so it won't scare oh, you I'm, to hold. I'm happy holding it. Is that about the right distance? Yes, that there? is about the right distance. Like normal. Exactly. Are they heavy? Yes, they I are. I normally leave mine in the stand. So. Yes. <laughs> well, um, so who are you and what are you drinking? Uh, I am George Egg. I'm a. I shall tell you what I do as well. I'm a comedian who cooks on stage, and I'm drinking chai latte. 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 I latte. don't know. I, I've and I'm trying. I'm like. trying to. Do, I'm trying to find. I went to India. I went to Mumbai years ago, and I had a, a little cup of tea in a market there. And I've, I'm trying to find it again. You've spent your life seeking yeah. out that experience. Try to recreate it at home. And this looks. This looks a lot bigger and not as red. <laughs> but I'm sure it'll be very nice. And what was your? What brought you to India? Uh, it was. It was one of the maddest uh, weekends ever. I um, I was supposed to be doing a comedy festival with Comedy Club for Kids, and um, the uh, a combination of disorganisation over there and over here, and it being Christmas during the time when we were supposed to be getting our visas, uh, meant that the morning I got my passport back with my visa in it, um, just just before Christmas, um, I. Um, had a phone call from Comedy Club for Kids saying the the venue have cancelled because no one else has got their visas or because no one's got their visas and it's all going to be too complicated and they can't get the insurance and I said I've just got my visa I've got the dates all booked out I really want to go um, so I said look do you mind if I get in touch with the festival and just see if I can come anyway and they said fine so I emailed the director of the festival and uh, explained the situation and he said well if you want to come over still we'll give you a per diem and uh, and your hotel and your flights and it will just be a couple of you know normal 20 minute gigs in pubs basically um, what is a pub gig like in M- Mumbai? Mumbai yeah um, fascinating so it was it was uh, an almost exclusively uh, Mumbai audience no white people at all um, and uh they were they had a, the, the most British sense of humour that I've seen uh, anywhere else in the world so I've been to Germany and Holland that sort of place and it's it's quite different there and it's a bit more literal they really got the silliness and the sort of clowniness and they were great they were just, but they were an upside of colonialism yeah well that's why I do I do I, I wonder yeah very much if it is yeah uh, yeah from 
Well, from some that. of the most beautiful English writing comes out of the subcontinent, India, and and that kind of tradition. Yeah. In some ways, that period of colonialization of heavy colonial influence. Yeah was a very literary heavy period and so it's sort of that that attitude to language gets frozen in time as they eject slowly the yeah. influence of the Brits from their culture this one kind of leftover remains yeah this is one of the interesting things about the discussion of colonialization in our culture at the moment which is that we are coming slowly more and more aware of the terrible, terrible injustices that were perpetrated in the name of the empire. Mm. But there are also some nice things. Yeah. But then you can't really talk about those because then it sounds like you're saying that uh, what you got was worth the price. And it's you, it's not maths that you can do. Yeah, no. You can't. You can't. I was going to frivolously say, well, you don't have to take plug adapters. <laughs> <laughs> it's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, but this is the, this is one of the interesting things. So, how much does noticing the good things that come out of a terrible thing reduce the badness of them? Mm. No, God, that's a. Because I remember when, I mean, this is a, a terrible analogy, but maybe it's a good analogy. After my mum died, or when my mum was very sick, people would try to soothe me with platitudes, and they'd say, well, you know, you're stronger for it. And I'd feel like, well, fuck you. Yeah. But it's true, I am. I'm a stronger person, I'm more compassionate. I know my limits, I know the limits of my compassion in a way that I don't think many people my age would necessarily... Um, and that's an important thing to know and it's a valuable thing to know and I would never have learned it or certainly not at this age. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have ever made that bargain if I were given a choice. Yeah. Yes, that's a subject that, well, as you know, I have empathy with you there because your mum died of MS, didn't she? Mm-hmm. And my wife has MS and so, yeah, so I have the same sort of thoughts of yes, I think that the time that she's had it our dealing with it has made us stronger and more tolerant and more tolerable and all those sorts of things but yeah would I you know yeah I'd still rather oh yeah it's been great for our personal growth like it's not you can't say that no but equally you know it's been great for the literature of the subcontinent like what can you what can you say without sounding like a complete monster yeah I don't know. Well, it is an interesting. It is an interesting thing to think about. Can I say I'm starting this podcast with paranoia because I um, I listened to I, I drove up and uh, parked up in Chalk Farm. My brother works there, so free parking. So that's all right. Nice. Um, but um, I um, yeah, I listened to loads on the way. Oh, thank you. And 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 one of them was the one that started with you saying how the previous one you hadn't put out because you didn't think it was good enough. (laughs) And then I was listening, thinking, oh, God, it's all quite high-powered. And I think one of my my biggest fears, because it's a a podcast about difficult topics and debate and that sort of thing, and I'm just... I shy away from it. I shy away from debate so, so much. I'll look at stuff on Facebook and so on like that, and I'll just... I won't even get angered by it. I'll just sort of... And I think it's maybe a, a result of being a father of three teenage... Well, two of them aren't teenagers anymore. They're older than that. But children who will bicker as they do and so on like that. And actually learning the best way to deal with things like that often is just to go, you Forget guys it. sort it out. Yeah, well, I mean, there's three things that I would say in response to that. The first one is I hate conflict I, I i can't i'm not good at it i don't like it it makes me feel very upset getting angry and being in a hostile debate makes me very upset and secondly i think not a lot of it is useful particularly when it's angry or confrontational but once you recruit people's pride or self-image into an argument there is absolutely no way you will persuade them of anything without beating them down to the point where they are personally and emotionally defeated and forced to concede your point. And I don't think there's any joy in that kind of victory because you're kind of ruining the person to get there. 
So for me, what this podcast is, is about having interesting discussions, taking out the heat of it, having it over tea, having it over, you know, in a relaxing way where I can say, I don't know that I agree with you on that. Yeah. Tell me why you think that. And, and making it more doable and more useful, I think. Maybe that's just idealism on my part. But No, I think it's... I think it is. And, and, and you know, I listened to the, the ones I listened to on the way here. And they were just all really interesting. They weren't... There was no heatedness and there was no... Not very much disagreement, really, I suppose, either. Well, I mean, there's not... I think it's more interesting to find out where you do agree. Yeah. And occasionally I'll, I'll say, no, I don't agree with that, but I'm more interested in knowing why you believe it and kind of laying out the argument so I can see where its strengths and weaknesses are. And I will, I'll gently provide a counterpoint rather than necessarily going, you're wrong. I'll be yeah, like, but yeah. what about this? Yeah. It's excessively diplomatic, probably, but... Um, I think it's probably more useful, maybe. I don't know. I don't I, know. I suppose my fear is that that I, because I don't engage in debates and things online, that you don't have the skill I set. I don't have the yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, you hit the nail on the head totally. That I'm not informed enough, or but that's one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on because you don't have a party line. So I'm interested in your perspective on, you know, what what the, what you think about, or do you just not think about any of the contentious issues of our day? No, I think I do, but, um, well, not the, not the we can talk specifics about it, but what we were talking about earlier, um, that I do have an opinion on certain things, but then there's this fear at the moment, I suppose, of voicing an opinion that you think might be. Uh, not misinterpreted even, but just shot down in flames and... and well, I mean, yeah, there's, a, there's sort of a couple of different fears. One is that you're wrong and that's embarrassing and that you won't be forgiven for being wrong. It's very difficult yeah. to back down off a point. The second one is that someone will maliciously misinterpret your point, which I think happens quite a lot. Yeah, well, certainly yeah. on social media, I think, where you're... I suppose the thing is with, with arguments like that on social media is you know we're having a discussion here and you might voice an opinion in front of a you know a discussion with sort of you know six or eight or 12 people who you know mm. but an environment like facebook or twitter or whatever you're you're having this debate with the entire world and and yeah and that's a lot more frightening i suppose and difficult and um here is an interesting analogy actually um, sort of in terms of like traditional gender politics stuff, uh, the way that men see courting and dating is you see a woman who you like and you approach them. Uh, whereas for women who traditionally haven't been the approaches, the thing that you do to um, get a guy who you're interested in is make yourself available. Yeah. But it's sort of very indiscriminate the way, you know, if you're dressing up prettily, essentially you're flirting with everyone in the room. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a similar thing. I think that's one of the good things about the way that things are becoming a little bit more equal and the way that men are becoming a little bit more hesitant to approach people. I had one of my Patreon subscribers say that they've started going out with a non-binary person and it's such a relief because they don't have to deal with gender norms. Right. Which I think is a very interesting... That's a whole, yeah, isn't it? I um, sorry, I'm just going to sip my uh, latte, which I'm enjoying enormously. Mm. They've put a sort of um, cinnamon sugar crust around the uh, the lip of the glass. It makes it feel is, like a fancy cocktail. Yeah, it's like a little meal almost. Well, I've got a rubos, what they call a true brew, where they give you a big canister of water and then they give you the tea, and it's got a little a little top bit and a bottom bit, and you press the button to put the water through the tea leaves into the bottom bit. And they've got these very small cups, which I think are not quite right, in that they're very nice. They have that double-walled thing where they are insulated from the heat, but the they're inside... Very pretty, but they, they, the inside they of the cup like is so orders, concave that in order to finish the tea, you have to basically tip your head up like a pelican. I'm going to try it now, because yeah. I haven't tried the rubber. Try it yet. now. It's nice, it's like... Like Ruebosch. Yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> uh, Normally I have Ruebosch in like one would have builder's tea with 
milk and sugar. Yes. Which I quite rather like that. That is quite nice. Mm. It's a very mild tea and non-caffeinated, uh, which is... There's something really faintly... Um, uh, sort of about the smell and the taste of it that reminds me very slightly of antiseptic. Do you know what I mean? Kind of slightly it's deckly. It's an astringent yeah. taste, but it's also got like those vanilla notes. So it's like licking delicious hand sanitizer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try and finish the uh, contents. See how far back. See up how far. Yeah. See. It, see what I mean? You have to tip your head right back mm. to get it out, and that yeah. takes out the elegance of the sipping of the tea. Which is probably really bad for your posture or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> probably making work for themselves here because there's all we're these in, treatment uh, rooms. <laughs> we're in Mayleaf Tea House in Camden, which is a great tea place, and uh, it's attached to a an acupuncturist and traditional Chinese medicine shop context for that little joke <laughs> so what have you been thinking about that you think you can talk about and bear in mind my audience are people who like this kind of thing they they're not yeah. gonna deliberately misinterpret you um they'll open with a question rather than an accusation if they think you've said something awful okay i won't you the, 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 um i watched um the uh hannah gadsby Netflix, uh, Nanette, the show, which won the, mm, all of the, the awards, the, everything, yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I found it, I found it really interesting. So I found I, I, I found it uh, moving mm. in places. I found it a bit eye rolling in places, if I'm mm-hmm. honest. Um, uh, and I found it a bit repetitive here and there not without reason you know um but i mean that's sort of the chorus of feminism is if you find feminism boring just think how boring we find it yeah yeah having to keep saying these things yeah um i didn't find it boring at all i don't Mm. i wouldn't want you to think that um but i didn't find it funny and i thought it was an interesting uh debate i suppose where one draws the line between comedy and theatre and political speech or something because it felt to me like a a very powerful political speech um, with a few a few laughs in it which in a way for me sort of undermined undermined it slightly um, so that almost it would have been more powerful without that well I mean it's an interesting take on comedy the idea that you that it, that comedy is inadequate to dealing with real trauma and I, I I'm okay as somebody who has used comedy shows as a trick before I've used you know Savage is very much a pretending to be a comedy show and using that to deliver a message and you know the resistance is about the difference between comedy and tragedy so I, I like that line. I like that question. I, I'm, I'm interested in where the line is and how far you can push yeah. comedy before it becomes not comedy, how much of it is a trick in yeah. that way. But I think, I mean, it kind of proves the point that she is making for herself, which is that for her it isn't. For her it's not enough to express her rage and to express her... Um, trauma it doesn't work yeah i think she says it doesn't work for anyone but i don't agree with that i think she's right if it doesn't work for her it doesn't yeah Um, except insofar as she's got all of the awards and a netflix special so clearly it's working in on some level yeah but whether it works as comedy or not is i guess the question well that's that's what i just found interesting is i just thought and i thought it was i thought it was brilliant and interesting and I've said to uh, all three of my kids particularly my two daughters you've got to watch this because it's really it's a really powerful piece you know hour of telly yeah <laughs> um, uh, but um, but yeah I just came away from it kind of going I don't know I did, not really knowing what, what to think and kind of going and, and I think I suppose maybe that's because the point of, oh no I'm sure and I can't what what I do on stage doing my cooking shows there it goes in the comedy section but it's kind of closer to a frivolous school assembly 
and there's laughs in there but it's almost you know it's it's you know in that sort of the silly side of TED talk territory than it is stand up um and, and things shouldn't have to go in boxes, you know, and, and I... Uh, well, this is one of the biggest questions, right, I, about our categorization of what comedy is. And I've been saying this for a while now. What we call comedy is is so broad. Yeah. Like, it's like if someone goes, oh, I don't like comedy, I'm always like, what do you mean? Yeah. What comedy don't you like? It's like saying I don't like music. What, yeah. what no, are you absolutely. thinking of? Are you thinking of heavy metal? Are you thinking of classical? Are you thinking, I think maybe there, there should be, I don't know, a pepper scale or something on the guide so you have more of a sense of what you're in for. Yeah. Of what brand of comedy, because you have this incredibly deep, incredibly powerful comedy with people like Daniel Kitson or Laura Davis or Hannah Gadsby or any of these people who are doing, or Sarah Kendall, just incredible stuff that is... Uh, very written, very theatrical, more on the theatre side of things. And then you have jokes, 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 jokes. Yeah. And then, you know, 101 liners in 10 minutes. How are they being judged against each other? Yes, no, it's ridiculous, it's isn't an, it? It's, a, it's bananas. But then I suppose, how else do you do I suppose you, have, you could have something like the Edinburgh Fringe programme that is just, this is just all stuff you know and they've got they've got to categorize it, i suppose and critics have got got to categorize it and and then work within those parameters and and we're all guilty of it as well watching something like like that and coming away going you know was it funny mm. it's kind of like, well, does it have to be mm. you know you could go to a play that isn't in the comedy section and come away with your sides aching from laughing all the way through but it it wouldn't be in the comedy section. Yeah, is it more spoken word performance, but then that makes you sound like a wanker. Yeah. You know, or people who call themselves storytellers and you go, oh. Yeah. There's so much baggage that comes along with everything. And one of the reasons I've always been drawn to comedy is because there is less baggage. People don't know what it means. People don't know what to expect. People don't feel intimidated by the label comedy. Um, yes, I suppose once, once people are, are into that world, I, I suppose people who don't know anything about the kind of festival comedy scene might see comedy and have incredibly narrow expectations mm. and either be enlightened by most of the stuff they'd see or appalled that it wasn't just jokes. You know. Which is one of the most fantastic things about this show, this Nanette, because it's so powerful and now it's going mainstream. And it is, for many people, the first, like particularly the American audience, this is the first time they've seen comedy being used like this yeah. as a weapon, mm. like as a sledgehammer against a particular issue. So I think it's good in that way. Um, but it, I also I think that the way the media is covering it is silly. I saw somebody say, now finally f- lesbian comedians have a voice. And you go, well, what about Ellen? What about yeah. Zoe Kumsma who won the award yeah, yeah. the other year? What about Yes, that's it. But then I suppose in the same way that that festival programs and critics like things in boxes the press like things in boxes so they want some tasty little sound bite or word bite that that people are going to latch onto either positively or negatively yeah and publicize their coverage or whatever but and it does feel odd talking about this kind of thing in this kind of way because i don't know how i would feel if people were talking about one of my shows like this particularly a show that was that personal I kind of I mean I don't know like I d- because on one hand now she's a big star and she's a cultural icon and you can discuss this kind of impact on culture on that element but then on the other hand she's a colleague I suppose she's been in the business long enough that she knows that there are going to be you know, once you're in that world where you you don't have complete control, you know, mm. that's what I love about doing the whole live thing is that, you know, it is absolutely exactly how you want it, right up to the music, yep. leading up to when you come on stage, to the music when they walk out, everything is up, is up to you and that's brilliant. And you and can I think, feel them reacting and adjust your performance accordingly if, yeah. you, if you want to. Yeah, and I think the thing is once... And Hannah Gasby must know this, that once you get into that world of television and film stuff and edited stuff, 
that while she was still, I'm sure she still has masses of control over it, she must know that uh, to get it on Netflix, there's going to be, she's going to have to relinquish some of that control. And, and then, you know, as you say, how it's being described. I don't know if, if what you quoted was a description from sort of uh, licensed by Netflix or if that was just press yeah I think it was just press right Um, but it is that yeah it's that thing it makes me sort of seeing it happen to somebody who I know and and seeing that division happen in my own mind this cultural product versus this person I know um, and my feelings about both of those things as separate it makes me see why sort of Hollywood people start to disassociate where they'll start you know someone like Tom Cruise will come onto a show and say, Tom Cruise is this, speaking yeah. the third person, because they are themselves and, and a product. And yeah. I think it's even harder for comedians because it's so personal what you do. You're not telling somebody else's story. You're not sublimating yourself to somebody else's vision. It's very hard to draw the line between what's on stage and what I you suppose, are. I suppose uh, um, being a comedian, like you say, in the same way that being a... a celebrity like Tom Cruise for example because you are because Tom Cruise isn't you know it, Tom Tom Cruise we see on TV is almost a character like the characters that he plays in yes. the same way that we as performers while we're being ourselves it's still in some way a performance mm. you know and so I suppose in the in the same way that you know when you'll have an actor on a chat show talking about a character they're playing and they'll refer to the character as if they're someone else and you say Tom Cruise is doing that I, I think it is the same sort of thing with with us as performers in that you know you could almost say what yeah you know, and it's not so clear stage though, Alice with, as yeah. opposed to me but then you there's also I mean? Alice with my dad there's a kind of person who I am with my dad that I'm not with my friends and there's a kind of person who I am with a stranger than I am with my brother yeah so all of these are kind of different facets and how yes, authentic really they are. Yes, certainly. I've never thought about that particularly, but, but certainly, yeah, the way I am with my wife is very different to how I am with my best friend and with my kids and all that sort of thing. And they're both, I mean, they're all facets of you mm. and some of them are further or closer away from the core. Yeah. But then equally, if you are a certain kind of person with a certain kind of person, say I am a... A compassionate friend to a friend of mine who goes through troubles, and I'm the I'm the person who they come to when they're in trouble, and we have a nice chat, and that's the role that I'm play in their life. But it's also who I am. I like to help. I like to listen. I like people's stories. I like human connection. It's important to me. I think it's one of the most important things is is understanding where other people are coming from. But if on one day I'm not in the fucking mood, and then I put on that persona without feeling it what, what's that like what what is that I've been thinking about this a lot of, of, of where that slides into passive aggression where you're not I think a lot of a lot of passive aggression is somebody who knows that they shouldn't be as angry as they are yeah um, and how much you know choosing to be a certain way is an ethical choice and how much of it is a deception <laughs> I don't know I don't know the answer this is what this is what keeps me awake at night this is what this is what I was worried about was sort of getting out of my depth <laughs> <laughs> can I just talk about this biscuit briefly yes you what may are the, it's a yam biscuit I had my one that one's is your that one. one that is your one uh, this feels unfair because we're sharing your tray and I've got my own drink as well yes but it's okay because I bought all of them so essentially it's all mine okay. and I'm going to take a sip Top of your chai whether you want yeah, me to no, or not please, sorry, no, I haven't even um, nothing. no do, do I'll try, try it. make is sure it you good? get some of that crust down there because that's really nice to get the little uh, cinnamoniness. I'm going to eat this biscuit mm. milky mm. is it anything like the one in India it's um, more milky and uh, less strong the one in India was um, like more closer to the colour of our rubosh. Um and I think maybe it had condensed milk and evaporated oh, milk sweetened condensed yeah. milk I mean I remember when we were in Burma as kids that you used to just get sweetened condensed milk out of the tube mm. and mm. I was like oh, but in a, a tube. A, there was not that cultural sense that children shouldn't have sugar so yeah. we would just in, in 
in Burma, you'd have this stuff uh, for breakfast called, or Myanmar as it is now, you'd have this stuff called brec- for breakfast called three-in-one. And I don't drink coffee. This is the only coffee I've ever been able to drink. And it's about one-third instant coffee powder, one-third milk powder, and one-third sugar. And Sounds it is great. incredible. <laughs> it's incredible. And you'd have that with breakfast. And I loved it so much. Uh, but I've I never been I able to drink any coffee in, since. in coffee. I get the squeezy condensed milk and a really strong espresso with a little bit of condensed milk and no... No sugar. No sugar, of course. Well, I mean, loads of sugar. sugar. <laughs> but no granulated sugar going in there too it's lovely as well if you put it in a little glass if you put the condensed milk in first and then pour the espresso on top it's like a little upside down Guinness they do that in Singapore that's a big thing that kind of right. two layer multi layer yeah. drinks and I then you stir it and it all goes like a kind of you know beautiful cloud sort of thing. I am yeah. um, I used to make juices in a cafe, a job I used to have um, in a cafe down in Double Bay, in, in, and I would pride myself on be able, being able to layer the juices in the juice glass so you'd have different, oh, right, nice. different colours. Like the coloured sand in the things at the seaside. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. Small, small perfections in life I think are worth enjoying. <laughs> it, is, it is all fine. Are you... You're living in uh, Brighton. Yeah. Why? Uh, because um, it's... Uh, I, I settled there. I went to university, so I was brought up in South London. And then, um, yeah, moved to Brighton to go to university and just just stayed. And I don't know if we'll stay there. Our kids are all kind of nearly grown up. My youngest is 17 and my oldest is 22. And I think when they're all completely gone we might move move where maybe back to london because all my family's there mm-hmm. um uh but um yeah but i don't really know why i, st- I don't know brighton's nice i think that's <clears throat> that's an interesting thing i think because um uh brighton's such a such a sort of tolerant and open and uh nice <laughs> struggling for Pleasant. more interesting words but an environment that where my kids you know have grown up in this incredibly safe um, tolerant environment where it is so normal to see you know two blokes walking along holding hands or two women kissing in the street or whatever like that it's just there's no you know and loads of their friends at school have, came out while they were still at secondary school and they've got friends you know, we've got family friends who live elsewhere in the country who I remember them being around and sort of, you know, one of our daughters saying, oh, you know, Sansa is a lesbian and be like, oh my God, oh my God, a lesbian, like that. And it's like, yes, say what? Um, so I'm glad we're there for that reason. I don't know my point really about that. I suppose it's... It was a good place to bring up children in the way that you wanted your children. Yeah, but that's not why I didn't... I mean, it's just that's up. just been a consequence that, you know, that we're just kind of going, oh, I'm glad that we brought them up here, not that we thought, let's stay here and bring up our children here. But, um, um, but I think that makes them all very tolerant people and very <sighs> emotionally intelligent people, you know. Do you think of yourself as an emotionally intelligent person? Um, yeah, I think so. I don't know. I feel like what, all comedians what? ought to, although there is this uh, current thing happening in, in Melbourne um, where somebody... Um, do, do you hear about Eurydice Dixon's murder? Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, so somebody defaced her memorial on the day when there was meant to be a vigil that night. Really? Yeah, and... Uh, sort of a very uh, grotesque painting and then um, it has been discovered that it's somebody who is a comedian who did that or has been charged a, a comedian has been charged yeah, with doing yeah, yeah. this it's innocent until proven guilty yeah it seems the, the to law, be the, yeah, the lawyer in me <laughs> it seems to be consistent with some of the things he was saying online at the time and with his general uh, persona as a provocateur um somebody who's and when I say a provocateur I think he'd like to think of himself as a provocateur and what he is is in fact a cockhead Um, you know people Mm. like Jermaine Greer are provocateurs they say awful things 
but then they also say some reasonable things mm. and they get people talking. Whether you yeah. agree with them or not, you have a discussion about how much of what they've said you agree with. Yes, and right? it's a kind of intelligent... Except now that we're in the age of put them in the bin. So yeah. I think her brand is sort of falling out of favour, maybe. But he sort of, he'll just do awful things because he wants to make people sad, I think, really. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, for example, he did a video last year saying that he was coming out as trans to make a point that anyone can just say anything about anything and be mean to people who are trans. Like, yeah. a, that kind of thing is his brand and... So I, I, I don't know, we'll wait till the courts decide, but it does seem like if it is him, like, who does that? Yes, that's... It just seems incredibly immature. Like, I mean, think first, it's just, who does that at all? <laughs> well, I can see why someone who, you know, some sort of 11, 12-year-old kind of, you know, might to try and stir up something, do something grossly inappropriate without thinking about the the people involved yeah yeah but how can you not think about the people involved when the people involved are your co-workers oh no exactly so that's what I'm saying is I think when an adult does something like that it's yes it's it's like they must have some sort of screw loose to try and seek attention in such a negative and um, unpleasant way you know but I think that you could see why a child might do that and, um, yeah, well, then here's the question of, I assume what will happen if he goes to court and if he is convicted of doing this, if it seems like the evidence points to him doing this, whether it will bring up issues of free speech or freedom of expression. <laughs> because I'm very much a free speech activist and I'm a freedom of expression activist. Yeah, but activist. there's a huge difference between free speech, having a intelligent sort of measured debate, however abhorrent your you know position is yes to defacing oh yeah uh, I don't think what he did should have been allowed I Mm. think it is you know clearly it's just uh, in in, in its you know (laughs) simplest terms it's vandalism anyway you know yes I mean mean, the vandalism (laughs) element and the criminality of that is is one point but in terms of like my own feelings about freedom of speech I need to kind of articulate to myself what is wrong about that side of things like if if putting aside the vandalism of it what is wrong with him making the argument so i don't i don't know if he did that so let's put this aside and say on facebook he said um this is not an issue of men he the the point that he made was that the media was trying to make people angry with men over Eurydice Dixon's death. They were using her death to make people angry at men and, in fact, it was a problem of autism. He blamed autism and vaccines that cause autism for this death. He's a conspiracy theorist. Right. Um, And so... Should he be allowed to say that? Well, I think... I mean, it's a lie. It's been proven to be a lie the vaccines cause autism thing well I suppose he, he should be allowed to say that and equally be proved that it's a lie in the same forum yes but how do you hold people responsible for lies like what is the punishment for lying um, I don't know your law I would imagine would be more uh, would you know you, your, well, in a your court setting background. you've got fraud things uh, yes going. I mean if, if, if by lying that led to something happening then surely the lie is the the problem there legally is that how it would work or i think if you're inciting well if you're inciting someone to violence that's hate speech that's illegal yeah, yeah, that's um, you know you're causing a crime in this instance like in, i mean we know lying is wrong in a social setting in a small community a liar is punished by the fact that people know they're a liar and yeah. treat them like a liar and accuse them of being a liar and they're held accountable in that way. But now we have this really diffuse community where you can just lie and then most people will call you a liar and you can ignore them, but there's enough people who'll believe you Well, like that you kind of don't Trump feel is the impact. Just exactly yes. the, the, you know, the manifestation of that, isn't he? How he will just blatantly... 
just blatantly, blatantly lying. lie. Senator Lionhelm in Australia. And, and, and there'll be enough evidence online or anywhere saying this is a lie. Yeah. But the people who choose to believe him will just be blinkered to that and will just accept what he says. And so in the absence of any kind of proper punishment for lying, what do we do? Because he can just lie and then lie again and turn in circles. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what's the answer. Because obvious evidence, you know, knowing that it won't matter. What we do is... is or what is done is people try and prove that it's a lie, but then how do you enforce that view on the people who choose to believe? But if you believe, believe the them? lie that the proof is inadequate, then yeah, I don't know what I, I, I don't know what's the answer there. I think more education in scientific method, more education in logic, more education in reasoning, more mistrust of your own gut reactions to things yeah I think certainly more more education and everything and it's you know it's kind of most sort of unpleasant views come from a position of ignorance really don't they and yeah I mean we are and also more sense of, of where people's responsibility lies for things maybe I don't know but we are in kind of an environment now where it comes to trauma where people will believe the person who is traumatised and that's good except insofar as not all trauma is caused intentionally and you can't necessarily impute that Uh, this is a completely different point I've just gone off on the side here so so you can be genuinely traumatised by something that somebody has said or done if they didn't mean to say that or do that the current kind of argument is they should have known and I don't really believe that. I don't. It's like it's like waking up and turning to your boyfriend and going, "I dreamed that you were an asshole," and then punishing them for the rest of the day. Yeah. It's it's not. You need to know how somebody intended something, and you need to give them the benefit of the doubt as well, without letting somebody be an asshole and then pretend that they weren't being an asshole. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So if, if this guy who did the graffiti, whether it turns out to be this comedian or not, if he, if he goes, well, I was tr- it was actually a tribute, then you can't believe him. That's obvious yeah. that he, sh- he would have known that that wasn't true and that's a lie and, and the trauma that he caused to whoever saw that or was exposed to the reality of that, that's something he should feel responsibility for. But say I go to a, a different country and a word like, or no, a custom that I have that, I'm, that is normal to me, um, the way I hold my fork or the way I wear my hair is offensive to them and I didn't know it was going to be and there's, you know... I did a little bit of research, but not that much, a reasonable amount of research into where I was going, and then I found out that something, my earrings or my hair was super upset, like genuinely really awful and upsetting, you know. Uh, an example, I went out with my hair wet, and that's a sign of mourning, and I did it at a wedding, and it was rude. I want people to believe me that I didn't intend to hurt them. Yeah. And I want them to work through their hurt to understand that I didn't mean to hurt them. And in our current society, you know, when it comes to old-fashioned people who are catching up slowly and they're using the wrong words, but they're clearly nice people, I think you should, if they say something awful to you, if they call you a lezer or whatever, yeah, just because that's what they think you're meant to be called, then you, that hurts you and you have to think about it. I think there is a responsibility on both sides that you yeah. have to think about where that hurt's coming from, not dump a whole lifetime's worth of injury on them. Yeah. And then kindly and generously tell them. Yeah, certainly when it's like the whole thing of, you know, someone who's 70 years old, you know, trying to grasp why saying coloured is completely wrong, but person of colour is completely right. Yes. You know, and it's all about intent, isn't it? Yes. So if they were to say... But if it is about intent, <laughs> then you have to understand that their intent is not offensive. Yes, well, exactly. So that's what I mean, is that they could say something, you know, completely uh, unreasonable, but use the correct terms. Yes. <laughs> and that would be 
far more wrong than saying something completely reasonable but using the wrong the wrong word. You yeah, know. and I think that is actually not that hard to explain. Of mm. Just when you say that, it makes you look like this person. Yeah, it's like yeah. It's going, oh, by the way, um, th- that cool uh, moustache you're wearing, it's uh, associated with Hitler. It's a Hitler moustache. <laughs> I know it suits you. I know you've got a weird upper lip and you're ashamed of it, but... Um, just so you know, if you wear that moustache, people will look at you and think that you're one of these guys. Like, I don't think it's that hard. No. But it, why is it so rage-inducing? But then, well, in the case of, well, this defacing of the, the memorial, that's... That makes you know, me angry. There's, there's no, there's no uh, ambiguity there, and there's no sort of like, oh, I didn't think that, you know, that's just yes. pure, you know, almost mentally ill kind of disturbing provocative behaviour that that any sane person would say that's completely out of order you know yeah it is uh, it's so it's just so mean like it's, oh, it's just, just cruel and, and yeah it's just um, and to pretend that you didn't know that that was mean is no oh, you obviously knew that whoever did it knew that it was mean and knew that it was going to cause a stir and yeah. In the same way that, that, you know, a nine-year-old boy would do something wrong in a classroom because he knew he was going to get attention for it, you know, but we should grow out of that. But I suppose it's a, you know, it's probably something in his past or in his whatever that's meant his... Yeah, but even if you don't have connection to your emotions, even if that's something that is not... Or that you don't have connection to other human beings' emotions, you don't understand them, logic should tell you. Yeah. That. Yes, unless you're in some way deficient, you know. Mm. So where can people find you online, uh, <laughs> George? Uh, uh, I have a website called georgeegg.com. Yes, and, and you should um, go to his website. He does very cool cooking with household appliances. Yeah, currently with power tools. That's so exciting. So, yeah, so I'll be in Edinburgh doing that. And like quite fancy food oh, as well. Oh, really gourmet food, yeah. I mean, I if there were a category for food specifically in these festival programs I, I could occupy that because it's just purely on a culinary level it's good you, are you allowed to feed your audiences? I've looked into it vaguely and I do feed them I don't know I, I wonder if I I mean the story that I've heard yeah is that uh, I almost don't want a, you to tell me but go on there was a bake-off uh, person contestant who did a one-hour show oh yeah where I they know, made a cake yeah. And then uh, he was not allowed to... I think the licensing laws of the venue meant that he was the liability or whatever. Maybe you should get them to sign a disclaimer. Uh, we'll have a chat about that afterwards. Um, uh, okay. <laughs> a waiver of some sort. Um, but that he didn't want to be legally liable. And right. uh, he was high enough profile that it was reasonable that if someone got food poisoning or whatever, they'd take him for all he got. Uh, so he would say, I can't feed you the cake. And the audience would go, oh, and he'd go, but I'm going to be outside. I'm going to be s- signing uh, things and I'm going to cut this cake up into small slices and just leave it on the end of the table. Well, I mean, what I do, so is this all right? I, I say you can eat the food absolutely at your own risk. I mean, is that, is that enough, do you think? I don't know what the UK's law is, but I will look into it for you. Thank you, yeah. I like you, and I like your shows, so... Thanks. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much for coming and having tea with me. Thank you. It's been lovely.
do you know? Oh, do you not? This top is mistress we have got. Elsie Thompson, it is her name, and she helps the doppers at every frame. Lousy rifle, doll, lousy rifle day. On Monday morning, when she comes in, she hangs her coat on the highest pin. And when the boss he looks round the door, tie our ends up, doppers he will roar. Well, tie our ends up, we surely do, for Elsie Thompson, but not for you. Lally rifle, doll, lally rifle day. Oh, Elsie Thompson is going away, is it tomorrow or yet today? We'll tie our ends up and leave our and wait for Elsie to return again. Lolly rifle,